One year ago, my co-hosts Aaron, Mike, and myself decided to do a one-episode review of the film Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Now, being a fan of several types of nerd media, both comics, video games, films, and TV series, this sort of filled in a common ground. It was a property that sat between the overlapping parts of our Venn diagram circles, filled with many pop culture references, especially those relevant to the very late Gen X and millennial stretch. We all felt that the property itself represented something very near and dear to us. So, we went on our way to record a special for November and name it the Scott Pilgrimage. After we released that episode, the idea came across to us to potentially make this a yearly topic, always revisiting it, taking it at another angle. And it would just so happen that at the beginning of 2020, we decided to take a longer form approach. And the approach we decided to go with was to focus on secondary characters, which in this case involved not following Scott. For this year's coverage of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which we decided to continue calling the Scott Pilgrimage, we chose to take the approach of following secondary characters, as you'll hear explained in the following recordings. As we do tend to go on, it turns out that we have a lot to say about smaller facets of this film, and legitimately, we probably do have enough to banter on about for several more episodes if we wanted. But what resulted was a length of audio that we felt was long enough to merit being broken down and parsed out throughout the entire month of November. And so we have it. For 2020, we present to you a Scott pilgrimage in five parts. Alright, I know it's been a while, and we may have gotten away from it. Sometimes you live life, and you forget what's really important to you. You stray away from the things that are truly sacred. And this, my friends, is probably not one of them. But it is a pretty fun movie. We're here once again to talk about Scott Pilgrim and his precious little life. And his dirty lies. I thought the best thing to do this year would be to talk about Scott by not really talking about Scott. Wait, but how do you do that? By watching Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and not giving a dang about what the character played by Michael Sarah does. So... I like this idea. Let's tackle this a little bit like last year. Let's go beat by beat. If you haven't watched the movie, you're more than welcome to. 
Press pause. Watch it now. Highly recommended. Then press play again. Or my suggestion, press eject, go back to last year's Scott Pilgrimage, get prompted to watch it then, then pause that podcast episode, then watch it, then be caught in an infinite loop because you'll keep getting asked to watch and go back and watch and go back. I think that might be one too many instructions. Real. Go back in time. Re-re-re-re-re-watch our episode, re-watching the episode about watching the movie. He means re-listen. Welcome to the Scott Pilgrimage, the only podcast episode that happens once a year that flows through like the Macarena, where the very end is the beginning once again, and you punctuate each one of these episodes by watching Scott Pilgrim vs. the World at the beginning and at the end of the episode. Hopefully you guys have already stuffed yourselves with some good Thanksgiving turkey. Now stuff your ears. Hey, turkey giving. Let's kick this off. We start off again with the iconic introductory music from Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. And one of the first voices that comes out is the character I'll be following, Kim Pine. As she asks our protagonist about his new girlfriend. Our main character is a little bit aloof, but she keeps calling him out, asking him, what is he now, 28? He has been out of high school for 13 years. Then again, our protagonist does correct her, pointing out that he's not really 28, he's 22. So there's a bit of an introduction, or I guess sort of a pre-prepping that happens where they're getting ready for this new girlfriend to come through. And it shortly moves forward to the next scene, which is later that night. When practice starts. Ah, yes. He brought his girlfriend to band practice? That sounds dangerous. He certainly did. Kind of like a rite of passage. And I will be following the character Knives Chow, who is Scott's said girlfriend. So it's at this point, Scott's given them just a few bare-bone details about her. And she rings the doorbell to come watch Scott practice. I heard she was 17. She is 17. She's very humble and meek, kind of reserved and keeps to herself, but seems to be very supportive of Scott and his musical endeavors. Either that or she was just bored and looking for something to do. So she sits down and gets her first taste of the sensational local Toronto band, the Sex Bob-Oms. Not before making a terrible impression with Kim. When she walks in, She sees Kim sitting at the drum, and she asks, Are you a drummer? (laughs) You could just read Kim's expression, Are you effing kidding me? Yeah. Yes, I'm a drummer. Which, if we're being honest, that's the look that Kim wears on her face through most of the movie. Yeah, there's a a bit to unpack in that. Agreed. Yeah, it shortly does move on to our first large musical interlude with the opening credits. I would like to step back, because another part of... The Knives-Kim interaction that I enjoyed is Scott introduces her. Hey, Knives, this is Kim. What's your name? Kim. Are you a drummer? Yes. Daggers are flying out of those eyeballs from behind the drum set, stabbing into Knives with Knives. Taking her own name and shoving it in her chest. It was classic. Instantaneously. Right after that, we move directly forward to after the band practice, which, once again, 
Kim is one of the first ones to interject as for now she seems to be an exposition guide as she instigates the next conversation opening with Scott if your life had a face I would punch it. (laughs) I love that line. It's at this point that people are starting to give their opinions of knives and what they think about her. And yes, I too love that line. And Scott tries to come back by saying he's hurt by that comment. (laughs) Yeah, hurt and aloof, which... Wounded even? Which Kim comes back with, you hurt? Obviously there's some reputation that our protagonist has left with the group, at the very least with Kim. In a way, I feel like Kim is the only one who really sees Scott, because he's kind of a dirtbag. Honestly, if you really look at his character. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like she... She calls him out on his BS. Out of most of the characters, she neither wants anything from him or is phased by any of the facades that he puts on. I guess not to digress too much, but if you notice his interactions with the band leader, Stephen Stills, Stephen is usually more urging of Scott to amp it up. He's sort of the ringleader. And so he typically wants something not just out of scott but out of all the band members sure but meanwhile kim's in a place where if steven is the team lead then the rest of them are just colleagues in this group so she doesn't care i would actually claim that she is the driver to get the team leads job handled properly in the sense that you see on both the beginning of the rehearsal song and the song while they're at the first competition. He doesn't get a proper chance to look back and be like, are you ready? And she's just like, one, two, three. Mm." So she knows what needs to happen and reads the team lead's expectations before he gets to finish vocalizing it. She's a really strong force in this band, and I think with her minimal conversations, she is a strong force within the friend group. Which makes me wonder why she hangs around with the knowledge we will gain here in the future of some of her relationships she's had from high school now that they are all graduated she's definitely a woman of few words but when she does speak it's usually impactful in some way what scene do we have next we actually have scott going home after band practice to tell wallace not to listen to the dirty lies that people might be talking about now that he's spoken of his 17-year-old girlfriend and proceeds to tell Wallace that he has a 17-year-old girlfriend. Oh, by the way, Wallace is the person I wanted to spend a little time focusing on. Wallace responds to Scott's statement, Is he cute? He asks Scott, Oh, you've got a new girlfriend? Is he cute? And then Scott giggles and then proceeds to be caught in a moment of wallace kind of putting him in his place with the huh yeah you're totally my bitch forever as we get a nice round view of the apartment that clearly wallace pays for and all of the items in the apartment that are wallace's versus scott's which is like three items that scott owns 
articles of clothing. They even have to share a bed, and it's Wallace's bed. Which is really more of a pallet, honestly. I would say it's a quintessential post-high school, early college apartment owner layout from that time frame. Sure thing. Which was not to have an actual bed frame. It was just throw the mattress on the ground and throw maybe the box springs underneath. One of those big cushions people sleep on that they shouldn't. Futons. Futons are couches that convert into beds that are really bad for you. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Like those big cushions that people lay on or sit on. Or... But you see a layout of everything that Wallace owns in the apartment versus Scott. And it kind of reiterates the ownership of the relationship that the two of them have. Which is also kind of underscored when you first meet Wallace and the little title card pops up underneath him and it says wallace wells roommate 25 years old rating 7.5 out of 10 which clearly means that scott definitely thinks wallace is a 7.5 out of 10 and underscores what i want to talk about as a larger conversation between scott and wallace and the relationship they seem to have wallace is clearly friends with Scott's sister because it actually ends up Scott comes in talks about his 17 year old girlfriend and then clearly tells Wallace not to tell his sister who Wallace immediately tells and owns it you down with ODB yeah you know me while Scott is being reprimanded by his sister and he goes who told you Wallace told me oh that dirty bitch you know me like yeah, I caught you, buddy. I know what you're doing. This is a terrible decision. That's the vibe I get the moment this happens. But there's a short interaction after that, and Scott ends up wrapping up his interaction with his sister on the phone before we are dragged into the next scene, which is Wallace going with Scott to meet Knives at the high school. Which seems pretty uncomfortable for him because there's a bunch of underage children. And he even stated earlier that even he would think twice before dating a 17-year-old. Yes, he is definitely uncomfortable at the high school. Which Scott tries to reassure him by saying that this school has boys as well. To which he just replies, I hate you. So clearly no comfort. <laughs> yes, yes. I do like his next response after... Scott introduces Knives to Wallace, but I want to open the floor to the Scott-Knives interaction. Scott introduces Knives quickly to Wallace, in which Wallace takes both of her hands and says, you're too good for him, run. And then the Knives and Scott depart on a day of whimsy and just kind of a day date. You know, they go get pizza, they go get to thrift stores and pick up clothing. Gotta cut you off because I gotta dig in on that quick interaction. Sure, what's up? Scott introduces Knives to Wallace and directly says, Hey, this is my gay roommate, Wallace. He's gay. Knives goes, Oh, do you want to know who's gay in my school? Wallace, without hesitation, just goes, yeah. Does he wear glasses? 
I feel like there's a theme slowly being built here on a poor stereotype of what the idea of the high school gay male visual is. But it's very quick. It's just kind of brushed over. And that's right before, as mentioned, Wallace grabs Knives' hands and looks at her and goes, You're too good for him. Run! Almost foreshadowing future events for us. Yes, there's definitely lots of foreshadowing all throughout this film. So the date ends with Knives and Scott at a arcade playing some sort of Dance Dance Revolution Ninja Edition game. And it's here that you can see that they both have a very good chemistry. They've got good symmetry. They play well off each other. They know each other's rhythms. Even to the effect where Scott kind of bends down and knives, flips over his back to do a little cool maneuver to get them even more points. After passing that level, it asks for more coins if they wanted to continue. So after an awkward moment of silence... Knives said she'll get it. And then I believe it moves on to the next day. It definitely seems like Scott is using this relationship with Knives for something other than being in a relationship with Knives. And I feel like this moment is another setup to that statement. And it builds upon the previous iterations of Scott's conversation with the band about Knives letting her come to band practice, his conversation with Wallace in front of the school, where Wallace makes a dig at Scott that Scott says she can't come out at night, so it's more like before he can finish his statement, Wallace goes, playtime? A dig subtly from Wallace, but kind of an overarching theme of what the relationship is. This is something that Scott wants to feel good about himself, but isn't invested in the relationship itself. Well, if I might be able to tie a theme here between Wallace and Kim and Knives, is that it seems like Knives is definitely the way for him to counterbalance a lot of the influences that he gets from the more outspoken Wallace and Kim, who the two of which seem to be pretty set on, to some extent, grounding him. You know, kind of looking past his BS and calling him out for it. I totally agree with that. While Knives seems to be sort of a safe haven and escape from what is essentially being brought to him, both in his home life and his... I'm going to say professional life, as he doesn't have a proper place of employ through that movie. She kind of allows him to live in the clouds? Yeah. She definitely represents innocence, I think. and I'd almost say naivety. Oh yeah, no, there's definitely naivete there, but like, she's young and she's innocent and fresh. And I think that's what Scott ultimately felt comfort in, but... Also, being an adult, he knows that that's not how the real world works. And that real love is messier than that. 
he definitely does. And I think he's afraid of what the long-term possibilities are. Only in the small dabbling of interaction when, on the date, Scott and Knives end up at the record store and she fawns over Clash of Demon Head, which is the first dabble of validity of the relationship half mentioned by his sister earlier in the movie, where like he blurts a whole bunch of information out and then moves on from the conversation. Like he's emotionally dumping on knives but knows that she's not necessarily paying enough attention and he can skirt past it if he keeps talking forward and also it kind of reiterates that scott's not in this relationship for the right reasons because he immediately focuses back on oh knives please shower me with good feels Right after that, they do go on to the library, and this is where our protagonist gets his first interaction, although it is not verbal, with Ramona. This is sort of what tips his world into the turmoil that will be the rest of the plot of the film. Yeah, it was really interesting to meet her so quickly after he has a random dream. Of feeling alone and this random woman comes rollerblading up and like puts him in his place before vanishing and he's brought back to reality only to run into her shortly after. Scott wakes up from his dream world where he first sees Ramona, not knowing that she is a real person. When he wakes up, he wakes Wallace up, who then wakes as the movie notices other scott i like to imagine scott wakes up from a dream waking up wallace who wakes up scott (laughs) yeah and the subtitles when other scott wakes up is literally wallace's boyfriend 22 year old which is the same age that scott pilgrim is it kind of makes me dig into the idea that wallace is somewhat in love with Scott Pilgrim, which is why he allows Scott to live in the apartment, basically rent-free, and to some extent because of the prior interaction that Scott Pilgrim had with Knives, where he's trying to break up with her. There's a moment where Nega Ninja shows up, and I kind of wonder, is other Scott Nega Scott? For Wallace particularly. But that's a different conversation that we can have as we go on further. Her existence pretty much leaves him speechless, an effect of which kind of carries through to practice the next night, where Scott, as it turns out, forgot to play the entire song. Like, he played the first note, I think, of the song. It was a really good transition of time, because... It seemed so short, and yet so much time passed. It's mid-afternoon, he's at the library, bing, bang, boom. It's late evening, rehearsals seems to be almost over, and he gets the comment of, you played one single note that whole song. 
that's one of the praises I will sing forever about this film is its pacing. There is not one scene that overstays its welcome, in my opinion. It's really neat how they deal with time jumps and time transition because it feels so fluid. Steven informs the rest of the band that they will be going to a party this evening. It's sort of a networking opportunity for all of them. And on the way to the party, Kim, grounding our main character again, patronizes him as he keeps asking questions about the party. He opens up by asking where they're going again. Kim, almost as a narrative guide, reiterates that they're going to this one party. Oh gosh, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to mention when Scott wakes up from his days to find himself in band practice, Kim's first comment to him is, what, are you distracted by your girlfriend? Who he didn't even realize was sitting there watching them rehearse, and he just uh, 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 stumbles on himself. To which Sweet Innocent Knives replies with, I'll be quieter. Back at the walk to the party, Kim immediately comes back with, yeah, it'll give you something to complain about when he seems reluctant to go to the party. Reluctant to socialize. So I feel like at the party, this brings up one of the more iconic moments with Kim as Scott is at this point hunting for Ramona. And which is based on what he does for the whole party. During one of those interactions, somebody brings up how how he's pretty much a lady killer and how he's dated so many of the women there. And they bring up Kim, at which point, again, being one of the most valid moments in the movie for her with no dialogue, (laughs) they zoom in on her and just the background sound cue kind of intensifies her glare. She's just up against a wall, staring. That zero dialogue necessary, that glare said every little thing that it needed to. What? Kim and I are fine. Yeah, as we are informed that they were previously an item. Which really does bring me to question, how does Kim handle being in this band with a man who has emotionally wronged her and doesn't even have the wherewithal to apologize for his poor relationship decisions. What I think this does is it contextualizes all of Kim's interactions up to this point. It definitely gives us the tools we need to understand why she had been behaving the way she had over the whole, both the previous and future scenes she will be in. Totally agree. It brings a whole new understanding to the curt attitude she showed Knives when we first were introduced to Knives at the first band rehearsal of the movie. Or for anyone who has gotten to know any individual person on that level, it kind of gives her credence to how she can directly see through any of the facades that Scott puts forth. Well, the party winds us down with Scott having some extremely awkward interaction with Ramona. Attempting to flirt. But my focus is actually the post-party moment. Because Scott has bad 
interactions at the end of the party and then seems to leave only for us as the viewers to be abruptly awoken much like scott is with wallace stumbling in to his apartment drunk and quickly quips who's drunk wallace is as he throws keys at scott's face and proceeds to collapse onto the bed puts an arm around scott as scott tries to share his feelings and interactions at the party this is where i feel there is a moment where scott and wallace either are in an emotional relationship or maybe have been in a physical relationship in the past in the sense that scott keeps saying things like oh i like her oh maybe i should and wallace seems to mirror those statements maybe i met a guy he's really maybe i should break up with him I don't know. he knows better than scott does what's going on in scott's life it is at the next band practice when steven informs the entire gang that they are to be at the toronto battle of the bands the scene moves in shortly thereafter which of course kim interjects with cool story i feel like her dry attitude definitely kind of paves onto the rest of the group as she sort of again keeps them grounded and to sort of digress onto steven at the moment is he is freaking out because of this opportunity. So I don't think that she so much does it to harsh his mellow rather than, like I said with Scott, sort of ground his perspective and make Stephen not so much lose himself in the implications that he's bringing up about this whole opportunity. So yeah, they're invited to play this Battle of the Bands and Knives is, of course, ridiculously excited for Scott and the rest of Sex bob you know, inquires who they're going to play against, and it looks like their main competition is Crash and the Boys, who is part of the reason that sets Steven at his discomfort, ill at ease. They have, like, a, a flip chart of just, like, random facts about each of the band members, and it just somehow, it's inconclusive evidence, but yet it still seems to throw a wrench into the brief confidence that Steven had. So it's an interesting moment because at this point, Scott has gone out on a date with Ramona and both of his lady pursuits are going to be at this concert. The fateful meeting happens. Of course, eyes are shooting everywhere, wondering how this is going to play out. And Scott, in classic Scott fashion, just says, I have to go and runs. Clearly, he had forgotten that he invited knives. Yes. Because Ramona made his brain stop working properly. He was definitely caught off guard, which is great because I feel like this is a moment where we can have a little touch base with Wallace that Scott's sister is clearly doing a repeat of something that's happened in the past. She brings her boyfriend, or I guess the guy that she is currently dating, to see her brother play. Only based on the end result of this interaction 
He's got glasses. When Wallace asked Knives at the school if any of them were glasses, I think that was definitely Wallace revealing his type. I could agree to that. He basically wants him a Daniel Radcliffe Harry Potter at the end of the Harry Potter series. For sure. And Wallace definitely invests the rest of the Battle of the Bands digging in on Jimmy verbally at first. Now, I definitely think this is some of the best dialogue with Wallace in it. Now, he has a lot of good dialogue, but this is... One of his standout moments. Oh, when he throws shade at the band? Yes, it is great. He's so catty. Hey, Jimmy, do they rock or suck? I don't know. They haven't played yet. That was a test, Jimmy. You passed. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) We're crashing the boys. Is that girl a boy, too? It's not a race, guys. This next song's for the guy that's giving a shit up in the balcony. It's called We Hate You. Please Die. Oh, sweet. Love this one. Yeah, Wallace really shines in these scenes. I love Wallace in this moment at this first competition. It is upon the reveal of Crash and the Boys that everybody in Sex Bobomb realizes that they have a girl drummer. This specifically aggros Kim. Because to her, that is something that made them unique. That is... That was their shtick. Their gimmick. I guess is also sort of indicative of how detrimental the stereotype is to have the female drummer. Either way, this is something that she fixates on. And it's a brief moment. It is a bad stereotype. But at the same time, when I think of the generic stereotype of the drummer... The drummer is the band member that doesn't talk a lot, does not get a lot of attention. And with both this combatant drummer... I think they're almost as underrated as bass guitar in a band. I would agree. And I think in this moment, the competition's drummer and Kim, who has had very few lines since the beginning of the movie... This other drummer who doesn't say anything and just gives the middle finger to Wallace. It reiterates the overall idea of the drummer mentality, not necessarily excluding the additional part of both of them having female drummers as the thing that helps try to set them apart from other bands that they are competing against. It's worth noting, if it hasn't been mentioned yet, that during the whole set for Crash and the Boys, Wallace is hardcore flirting with Stacy Pilgrim's date, trying to seduce him without seducing him, just with looks. After Crash and the Boys finished, during the set change, Stacy starts to ask Ramona how she knows Scott and Ramona replies with he's just a friend and Stacy mentions that it's hard for her to keep up because he has so many friends. So then they ask Knives how she met Scott. In a moment of instigation, because Stacy knows what's going on. Stacy knows what's going on. She's trying to start a fire. She already told Scott to dump her fake high school girlfriend. I have to think that Ramona must know that something's up by this point too, because Knives, when she sees Scott at the bar, the rocket, I think is what it's called. 
she jumps into his arms and kisses him. So something's going on. During the set change, this conversation is going on, in which Scott freaks out, saying, oh no, this is a nightmare. Like, hey, we need to get out there and play now and play loud. So Knives starts the story of how she met Scott, which was on a bus with her mother, but they get abruptly cut off because Sex with Wong goes on the stage, to which she freaks out immediately, screaming out how she hearts Sex with Bomb. And when Sex with Bomb starts playing, Knives immediately passes out through the end of Sex with Bomb's set and the upcoming fight with Matthew Patel. And that leads us to our first musical number, which, because we're not talking about Scott or anyone other than Cam Knives and Wallace, results in fighting. So at this point, Knives wakes up, seeing that everything is done. Her friend just says, yeah, the concert's done. And then she starts cheering and wooing again. And I think that's where we have seen for the first fight right there. Except for the fact that Wallace is definitely making out with Stacy's boyfriend. Oh, yes. And she directly goes... Wallace, again? Which means this is not the first time that he has taken a dude from her. So maybe they share the same attraction to gentlemen with glasses. It's true. You can reach out to the hosts of Banter Banter on Twitter. Find me, Manny, at Brogar, C-R-E. Aaron can be found at 8-Bit Wizard. The 8 is Roman numerical. Find Mike at Mike8Time. That is the number 8. Or holler at our podcast page at banter underscore cast. Or find it on Facebook at Banter BanterCast. The art for this podcast special was created by at Pepper Troopa on Twitter. I hope you enjoyed part one of our Scott Pilgrimage. We'll be back next week with the continuation in part two of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World.